the federal acquisition regulation is clear. Fixed-price contracts are just that, fixed price. There's no provision for adjustments because of inflation. Or is there? A memo last week from the Defense Pricing and Contracting Office offers some hope. Smith Pactor McWhorter partner Zach Prince has studied the memo closely, and he joins me now. Zach, good to have you back. Good to be here, Tom. And all of the defense contractors, I guess maybe civilian contracts also, are complaining that inflation is eating into their ability to deliver on a fixed price. Exactly what does the FAR say about that? And is this also true of the DFAR? The FAR is clear in defining a fixed price contract as a type of contract that provides for a price that's not subject to any adjustment based on the contractor's actual cost experience. So the idea is that it places a risk on the contractor. It also potentially affords the contractor opportunity to make much higher profits than you would under a cost-type contract. This is under the DFARS and the FAR as well. Right. I guess the supposition is that if the contractor can creatively cut costs, then so much the better for them. They can make the profit increase. And therefore, if costs go up, tough. I mean, that's the general theory here. That's right. All right. So then with inflation kind of galloping away in the last few months, uh, some of the people in contracting and some of the people in the Pentagon probably don't remember when inflation was a generalized scourge of the land 40, 50 years ago. What's going on now? Now that we're seeing inflation that's in the upper single digits, I mean, really unprecedented in modern memory, contractors are facing the reality that when they price these contracts, often many years ago, they were assuming certain contingencies those contingencies were based on expected, you know, reasonable, historic numbers. They weren't based on anything like what we're seeing today. So companies are facing significant losses when being forced to perform at prices that they proposed five plus years ago at times. Do you know any examples of fixed price contracts or types of contracts that could be affected by this? Because there's services contracts, which tend to be wage inflation driven, but can fixed price contracts also be for delivery of goods that are manufactured where you're facing raw material supply costs? Absolutely. And this issue is hitting across industry, even in the services sector, especially when you're on a time and materials contract where you're stuck in certain hourly prices. But where I'm hearing the biggest complaints are from the manufacturing side of things. My manufacturing clients are being forced to abide by prices that they proposed in a very, very different world. Just give us an example, if you can, without identifying clients, what it is they make or the types of goods and or services they're delivering. Sure. So, for example, if you're producing an electronic part, a circuit board or assembly of some sort, not only are you facing much higher prices because of inflation, you're also facing serious supply chain challenges. And this has been increasing over the past few years, but you're getting to a point where some parts are either unavailable entirely or if they're available are at a much higher price than could have been anticipated. I guess if you're also supplying ordnance, for example, or ammunition for small guns, you're buying brass, you're buying lead, you're buying different metals and different powders and chemicals. And I imagine those are all up too. Commodity prices are up. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about a final assembly, whether it's a plane or a ship or you know something smaller like small arms, you're talking about thousands, if not millions of individual parts in the supply chain. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter. All right, so now a certain unit in the Defense Department has come out with a memo. Where did it come from and what does it say? The memo comes from uh, the Director of Defense Pricing and Contracting. 
And this is a follow-up to a memo they issued in late May. The memo in May was extremely disappointing. It essentially said there's no basis for contracting officers to even consider requests for equitable adjustment to firm fixed-price contracts. It did instruct contracting officers to consider economic price adjustment clauses, or EPAs. Those afford contractors the ability to have prices trued up, either prospectively or retrospectively, depending on the clause, uh, usually based on a pre-agreed indices. Now, the Bureau of Industrial Statistics will put out their numbers about inflation, and if you hit a certain threshold, you'll be entitled to a price increase. That helps contractors going forward. It doesn't help contractors looking back. So uh, this new memo, which came out uh, last Friday, September 9th, gives two conceptual bases for recovery. So it goes a little bit further. The first really isn't much. There's some circumstances where an accommodation can be reached. It doesn't say what that accommodation is, and it seems to suggest that that wouldn't include price increases. So maybe that includes schedule relief, which contractors may be entitled to anyway for an excusable delay. But in any case, it says it has to be with consideration for the government. I'm not sure what that consideration is, but if the government's getting consideration, presumably you're not getting a price increase. Then there's also a second possibility for relief under this memo then, too. That's right. So the, the second possibility may be more meaningful although it's going to be challenging for contractors to take advantage of it. There is a statute, Public Law 85804, within the FAR and DFARS at Part 50, that provides for discretionary relief in extraordinary circumstances. You don't see this happen very frequently, but what happened is if you can demonstrate to the government that there is no other basis for you to get recovery, you're facing a substantial loss that will impair your ability to continue existing as a contractor, and appropriated amounts are available, you might be able to get relief from the government under this 85804 basis. The memo says that this could be a basis for contractors to recover in fixed price contracts. Uh, we'll see how this plays out in practice. I fear that in reality, because of how challenging administratively this thing is to uh, submit requests under, the contractors that are hit the hardest, which are the small businesses, are going to find it very challenging even to go through the administrative rigmarole of getting their request in front of the agency. Yeah, because as you point out, there are some provisions, for example, if there's no basis for recovery or the contractor is going into a loss or may not be viable as a result. But there's that other clause you mentioned, number two, if appropriated amounts are available. Now we're heading into a continuing resolution and the government could say, well, look, I'd have to reprogram the money to be able to pay you more for this circuit board or that bullet. And I'm not going to go and ask for a reprogramming of dollars. Therefore, the appropriated money is not available. That seems like the government's out here, I'm guessing. It is, and I'm sympathetic to the government's concerns. I mean, the inflationary pressures are not just hitting contractors. The government's budgets are certainly being squeezed as well. But considering the government's ongoing concerns about a shrinking defense industrial base, it seems prudent for agencies to go to Congress and request more money and figure it out somehow. All right. So tighten your belt, contractors, is your basic advice here? That's right. And because of this environment, contractors might be tempted to press forward with claims, for example, that they otherwise would have just let slide by because they can't let any opportunity to get relief that they're contractually entitled to slip through their fingers, given the inflationary pressures. I wonder if there is some specification in a contract such that a contractor can wiggle their way out of a cost by meeting a spec in a cheaper way. 
I mean, value analysis or something, or the wall of this can be reduced by five mils and therefore will save 3% on the cost of XYZ material. Kind of uh, like the way Hershey bar makers keep making it smaller and smaller for the same price. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. I think contractors are going to have to be very careful to read their contracts closely and they're going to have to be creative and coming up with ways to recover their costs without harming the taxpayer or the agencies. Zach Prince is a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to that pricing memo at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. The Federal Drive is inflation-free. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, 
And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, 
I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it, whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.